Well, good morning, everyone. Hope you're doing great. Um, I, I'll be honest, my, uh, my day is already made. I have always wanted to see Toby in a robe. Um, <laughs> it's awesome. So uh, I could go home now and be great. Um, but we're going to keep, keep pressing on. Uh, if you've got a copy of the scriptures, Matthew 1 will be our text this morning. Matthew chapter 1. Got a small but loaded portion of scripture to consider, beginning in verse 18. Let me remind you as you're turning there tonight, we'll be back together in this room at 5:30. Uh, let me encourage you, particularly if you are a member of our church, uh, be here tonight. Um, this is not one to lay out on if you can help it by any means. Uh, be here. Uh, First, we're eating together, and it's going to be good, all right? Uh, guys have been laboring on it all day yesterday, and we're going to have some grub. Uh, bring a dessert. I like banana pudding. Bring it on. Uh, whatever, whatever you want to bring. Um, but, but perhaps more importantly than just food, we're going to, we're going to be in here, uh, sing a couple of Christmas carols. We are going to vote on this year's budget. We're going to commission Robert and Ted, ordain Robert, going to introduce Michael and Leslie Sesmat to you, uh, been leading music, and uh, just do a number of things. So please be here. If you're a college student, I know exam season and chaos, but if you're a member, make it a priority to be here tonight. I think it will be helpful uh, for us to be together. Let me, um, let me pray again as we uh, turn our attention to the scriptures um, together this morning. God, we do uh, need your grace to, to still our hearts and minds. Um, we uh, recognize that, that those can be become so convoluted and entangled, both by the, the implications of our sin and uh, the reality, the burden that that can bring um, as we gather together. And just by the, the fallen world we live in, where pain and brokenness seems to confront us at every corner, and, um, entering a season that, that often brings incredible busyness and pace, it, it's really hard in our human frailty to still our minds and, and focus on you, but, but we're, we're reminded that we, we have your Spirit, we're indwelt by your Spirit, we who are in Christ, and that Spirit enlivens our, our minds and our hearts, our affections. Um, it helps us to push beyond our human frailty to see Christ clearly. So we ask that your Spirit would have that effect on us this morning. Pray that your Spirit would make my words far more profitable than they will actually be, that they would have shaping effect uh, on our lives, our worship, and obedience to you. We ask that for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. So Matthew 1, chapter 18, presents for us a reality that we confront often in life. Two seemingly incompatible ideas that are positioned together. We see these in, in words Jumbo shrimp, right? Those don't seem to go together. This week I was listening, uh, driving to Richmond and back uh, to uh, Fox News story, the University of Texas 
uh, attempting to promote safety as students travel from one place to another. And uh, Matthew McConaughey, I, I think he's a big deal, whoever he is. I'm just kidding, I do know who that is. Um, decided, I guess he's a Texas grad. He decided that he would show up and drive the golf cart to pick students up. And so uh, students called like the helpline, and here comes Matthew strolling up in the golf cart to transport them to, to class. Like what in the world is a famous actor like that doing there? Entire shows like Undercover Boss where you have person in a situation where they're not supposed to be multimillionaire serving in this environment. And even in the Bible, we confront this to, to seemingly incompatible ideas positioned um, side by side. The notion that there would be true freedom while being a slave to God. Freedom and slavery Seemingly incompatible ideas, but both affirmed in the scriptures. Or that we would have joy while we're refraining from sin. It seems those two would be incompatible, but yet they're positioned side by side. The way Matthew is going to introduce Jesus' birth is going to be comparable to this. He's going to introduce Jesus using two seemingly incompatible descriptions but two descriptions that, when positioned together, accentuate the magnificence of Christ incarnate. In verses 1 through 17 of Matthew chapter 1, he's provided for us a, a detailed genealogy, specifically Matthew writing to a Jewish audience describing God's faithfulness from Abraham up to his own generation through, through what is an interesting assortment and cast of characters showing in this genealogy that Jesus is the promised fulfillment of the covenant that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. Then he is going to focus in on the birth of Jesus, providing a clear and connected narrative of the events and circumstances surrounding his birth, starting in verse 18. So let's begin reading there. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So just at the outset, we have the, the same cast of characters as we saw last week in, in Luke's gospel. Though Matthew is going to shine the spotlight in different ways, the same players are at work. Mary, a young 13 to 15 year old pregnant girl. Joseph, the descendant of David, who would serve as her as, as Jesus urged. Once again, highlighted as the, the agent, the, the one who accomplished this great miracle. And we're confronted with the same situation. Same character, same situation. Mary and Joseph are betrayed, divorced, widows, young girls found to be with child. The betrothed woman most often is still living and under the care of her father, not engaging in sexual relationship with her husband. So, if a girl is pregnant at this stage, 
we've got one of three options. Option one is a scandal associated with premarital pregnancy, betrothal pregnancy. Two, adultery. She's been unfaithful and had a lover outside of this betrothal commitment. Or thirdly, rape. Scandal, adultery, or rape. These are the three alternatives, at least from the human perspective, of what could have happened to Mary. And so then, Matthew's going to turn the spotlight where Luke focuses the narrative from Mary's perspective. Matthew is going to say, let's, let's consider this from the husband's perspective, from Joseph. So we read her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, this perhaps doesn't seem like the just thing to do, but her husband Joseph has, has a choice here. Matthew tells us that he's a righteous man, probably meaning faithful to the law, wanted to do what was right. Clearly, we see here in his dilemma, he wants to do what's right out of love for Mary. The two options are, one, we, we do a public trial. The public trial gives us the opportunity to determine which of those three things happened. Which of the three above is true? And more than likely, because we have no hint of rape being even hinted at in the narrative up to this point, one of the first two options is going to play out scandal, premarital pregnancy, you actually have been together, though you said you hadn't, or adultery, either of which is going to expose Mary to great public shame. Interestingly, this is the same word that Paul uses in Colossians 2 to describe what Jesus does to the enemies and principalities. He exposes them, puts them to public shame, triumphing over them through his death, burial, and resurrection. So, Joseph could put her to public shame in that same way. Or he could divorce her quietly. Just a written document signed in the presence of two competent witnesses. Clearly, in this case, people are still going to ask questions, but this is going to at least avoid the, the public spectacle the shame. But, we read, continuing in Matthew's Gospel, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So again, an angel shows up. And this angel informs Joseph, and interestingly, Matthew places this like right in the middle of the contemplation. So we, we're, we see the, the question, what's Joseph going to do? He resolves to divorce her quietly. This seems to be the end to which the story is pointing. And then the angel shows up and points Joseph to the role of the Holy Spirit in doing what the Holy Spirit does, giving life giving life. And once again, we see this Joseph introduced as a son of David, showing that this life is going to be incorporated into the promises that God made to David. He would, in fact, be the Davidic king, the one who inherited not just the promises made to Abraham, but also the promises made to David. And the angel instructs Joseph to do something really remarkable. 
to perform the father's role in this scene, to name the child, to make the child his own, and to name the child what was a familiar name, a name meaning God saves, uh, equivalent to the Old Testament Joshua, God is salvation, a frequent name among, Joe's, among Jewish boys of the day, which perhaps reflects, at least in part, this hope amongst Jewish parents that God would send a Savior, that somehow the oppression would cease. The name Jesus was kind of the average Joe, as it were, representing this longing that the people had for God's salvation. And the angel, in this introduction, says what angels have to say, right? Don't fear. Now, generally, that don't fear can be translated, hey, I'm an angel, don't freak out, okay? But, but it seems here in, in Matthew's setup that it's the elements of the situation that he's telling Joseph, don't fear. Like, don't fear to, to take her as your wife. Don't fear to take this child as your son. Don't fear the fact that what she's conceived is from the Holy Spirit. And just a moment's contemplation reminds us that this would, in fact, be a quite fear-inducing scenario, right? It's not as if you're going to walk up to Bob at the neighborhood Applebee's and say, hey, dude, I didn't get her pregnant. God did, right? That's going to go really bad really quick. Joseph knows that in following through, by the way, there's not an Applebee's in this time. Um, Joseph knows <clears throat> that in following through <coughs> with the angel's instructions, he is going to be exposed, scandalized, in much the same way that she was and will be. So, if you are going to not fear, if you are going to do what the angel instructs Joseph to do in this scene, the next couple of verses have got to be like mic drop verses. I mean, they've got to be big, right? If I'm Joseph in this moment, I'm thinking, all right, Mr. Angel, but you're going to have to give me some really good reason to have to answer this question for the rest of my life, right? Everybody that I meet, I'm going to have to say, yeah, that Jesus, he's my son, but he's also God's son. Like, how do you explain that? And so the angel, the angel does. Notice this first big idea. Four, naming Jesus, four he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. At the introduction, I, I said Matthew's going to set up these two seemingly incompatible ideas, and this is the first of those two. Let's slow down on this phrase a little bit and work in reverse order to consider what the angel says this Jesus will do. First, he says, he will save his people from sin. Let's focus on that last part of the phrase, save his people from their sins. It's easy for us 
to misread this claim in light of a completed Bible and our American eyes. But I want you to remember that at this point, Matthew is writing to a, to a Jewish audience, and his people here in the text would clearly have referred to this, the nation of Israel. His people would be a clear reference to the nation of Israel, the direct descendants of the promises that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. Now, Jesus puts himself in that line. This is his line. He's embedded amongst this people. Yes, as the story unfolds, we're going to see that a considerable portion of the nation of Israel is going to reject his divinity and saving activity. And in a miracle, God's going to extend that saving work to those outside of the historic people of God. Yet this is not, all this is not in view, or at least not explained yet. The thought here would have been covenant fulfillment. Land, blessing, numerous as the stars, privilege. He's going to be their God. They will be his people. Consider the prophet's words from Ezekiel chapter 36. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries, and I'm going to bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone and your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all uncleanliness. I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Amen. This is the promise that God has held out, that in the future he would act on behalf of his people in these ways. Now certainly with completed Bibles, we can read into this passage these promises being directly correlated to what God does for all those who are heirs of Abraham, right? All of us who are in Christ. But here, Matthew is highlighting the fact that this Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of these promises, and it's easy for us to read these through American individualism. To read this promise as he will save a person from the penalty of his or her sinful actions. He will save a person from the penalty of his or her sinful actions. But this is not the promise that's made. In fact, the promise is far greater than that. Now, again, clearly, they have no clue how all this is going to play out. There's hints and pointers, but the magnitude of the way that God's going to accomplish this, loaded in this little baby. But Matthew is going to, as his gospel unfolds, link the saving activity of God, of Jesus, with forgiveness, 
not just of individual sin, but of sins, big sins, of the offense that we have committed before God. We'll read in Matthew 26 this promised fulfillment at the Lord's Supper when Jesus takes the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You see that Jesus is going to hold up his death, burial, and resurrection and say, this is for, not for you, disciple, the forgiveness of your sin individually, but something bigger than that. That certainly has implications for you individually, but that is far broader and more reaching. Paul's going to tease us out in places like Romans 5, where he says that Jesus, the fulfillment that Jesus brings in the death, burial, and resurrection, uh, in his death, burial, and resurrection, has far-reaching implications, much like Adam's transgression has far-reaching implications. So the forgiveness of sins summarizes this concept of salvation. But it's much more than the mere pardon of individual wrongs. It indicates that what Jesus is going to accomplish is going to remove the barrier between God and his people. Far more significant. It would be wrong, however, to give the idea that his people would stop sinning. So we might better say something like, he will rescue them from the situation of their sin or from the, the effects or results of their sin. Or you might even say the punishment that they deserve because of their sins. Whatever Jesus is going to accomplish, his ministry will involve more than physical liberation of Israel from its enemies, but the spiritual salvation of God's people by the removing the alienation between them and God that their sins had caused. This is the fulfillment of the promises such as Psalm 130. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So, in mind-blowing fashion, Jesus is perfectly positioned to do this. His father is God, fully divine. His mother Mary, fully human. Jesus is able to pay the eternal penalty for our sins, which our finite humanity could never do. And as fully human, he could serve as the representative substitute for his people. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Thus, Matthew introduces Jesus with this resounding note of grace. But consider the pronoun. So, save his people from their sins. Now, let's flip back to the beginning of the sentence. He. It's easy to gloss over the pronoun. Matthew makes it clear this is the one and only God-appointed Savior. He is the one that will do this. There is and never will be another one baby 
That's why what the angel says, he's, he's emphatic in the sentence. He and no other. He who is all God. Consider this, Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, you don't have to be an English major to notice the number of he's, him's, his's in that passage. There's one person that can do this. There's one, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And it is clear to us that Jesus is aware of this. It's not as if his design, divine identity is somehow unknown. He would make claims like in John 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He takes the covenant name of God and applies it to himself. This is what gets him killed. He is the one and only appointed, God-appointed Savior, and he, he knows this. And then, then will. This, this works. I want us to, to note the fact that this, this language isn't, isn't a hope promise the way we use will. It's not like Clemson will win the national championship, okay? Amen. Now, Andrew and two others who are a little more modest with their claim, they're like, yes, but you don't know if that's going to happen, Right? What you're saying in will is, I would really like that to be the case. Or some of you others might say, Alabama will beat Clemson by 87 points, right? Because you're a Gamecock fan and you hope they get demolished, right? Notice, when an angel of God says will, this is a pledge from God who always accomplishes his plan. He doesn't use will the way we do. It is not, I hope if circumstances work out, Jesus might just save his people from their sins. No. This is, Joseph, don't worry. I'm not asking you to design some sovereign rescue mission on your own. All you've got to do is trust me. I'm going to work through you to accomplish my plan. I will do it. Okay? So this is one promise. He will save his people from their sins. Let's keep reading. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which parenthetically Matthew is going to say, which means God with us. Now, if we just stopped at the sermon I've preached up to this point. He will save his people from their sins. That's worship enough, right? That is a magnificent claim. But when placed side by side with this claim, it is staggering. Notice, Matthew says, all this takes place to fulfill what the Lord's spoken by the prophet. And it's, it's interesting for me that, that he said that, this is before we even see what Joseph's going to do on the back end. 
He says, this is, this is all going to take place to be a fulfillment of what God has promised beforehand. And here he's going to quote Isaiah 7, 14. Kind of giving a lead into this passage. This is Isaiah 7, 10 through 14. And the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, in this context, most will point out that the Lord is speaking here, at least at one level, to Ahaz's direct descendants. This fulfillment promise that God would give to a king so long ago. But much more is at hand than the fulfillment in its immediate context. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that often God is going to make immediate and future fulfillment of his promises. The immediate fulfillment is going to produce less than what was seemingly hoped for on many occasions, hence priming the pump for the people to say, there's got to be more coming than that. There's got to be more there. So is this talking about Ahaz's children? Yes. But what we see in the text is, yes, but. There's more to come, because ultimately, all human descendants of these kings are going to consistently let the people down over and over again anyway. So the people, much like if you do gifts in your home around Christmas, the kids opening a stocking gift on Christmas Eve. Christmas PJs, yes! right? All right, kids, we're done. That's it. That's all mom and daddy got this year, okay? No, your kids are opening Christmas Eve PJs in the expectation that PJs are only a little foreshadowing of something much greater that's going to come tomorrow morning, right? Okay? This is, this is the picture. There's more than this. There's more than just the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, and this more than this is Jesus, here, Matthew calls him Emmanuel and then explains this means God with us. There's no mention of, of Jesus actually being called the, like this isn't his actual name. Nobody's calling him this on the playground. It's not even perhaps a, a nickname that he would go by. It's a, it's a description. It tells us what he's going to do, what, he, what he's going to be and Matthew says, the thing you need to know about this description is he is God with us. Now, let's pack these together side by side. So packaged with, he will save his people from their sins. Note the amazing, incomprehensible combination that comes when we consider a savior from their sins who is also God with us. He will save his people from their sins and be able to sympathize with their weakness. 
It would be easy for us if all we had is the first notion to construe God as a distant deity, a divine watchmaker who just sets everything in motion. But at Christmas, we see the dual nature of the incarnation. Shows that this is how God works. He's not a distant, disaffected deity, but he is one that has walked on this earth, experienced real temptation, saw real people die, watched sin wreck other people's lives, such that the writer of Hebrews can conclude this, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, this is what's stunningly mind-blowing about Christmas. To have a Savior who is not a sympathizer is a disaffected deity. But to have a sympathizer who couldn't be a Savior simply wouldn't be God. I don't need you to sympathize with my brokenness. I've got a whole bunch of people here that can do that. But when packaged together, I have a sympathizing Savior or a Savior who sympathizes. That makes Christmas astounding. I can draw near to the throne of grace knowing he sympathizes with my weakness. I can confront loss and death and pain and brokenness knowing that My God has experienced those things, and he's experienced them in ways that I never will. Look at the cross. This is a motive for my love and worship of a sympathizing Savior. Then, secondly, note, note this. He will save his people from their sins, and he will dwell in their midst. I mean, this is the Old Testament refrain. I'm going to be with you. The temple, the tabernacle, this is God's dwelling with them. This is the the pledge that he makes to the people throughout the Old Testament. They go into battle and they get destroyed. Why? Because God was not with them. Yet, by the time we get to the Gospels, it's easy for us to take this God with us notion figuratively. God would send a human leader who would save his people, and through this leader, it would be as if God was working on behalf of the people. This is not what happens. God knew the plight of human sin, and so he sent himself. This is stunning. I mean, for Eastern religions, this isn't a big deal because God's present in everything. But for Jews, this is huge. They won't even pronounce God's name because they know the magnitude of what that name represents. And here, God, fully God, dwells among them. They know what's required for that to happen. Something like this, something like this this hymn of the early church in Philippians 2. The people are encouraged not to have this mind uh, where they look out for their own interests, but consider Jesus. The song is going to tell us what he did. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. And note, who's, who's the actor? He did this of his own volition, being born in the likeness of men. 
being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. But before we get to those latter verses, we've got a divine descent. This is what is required for deity to become human. Leading J.I. Packer to conclude, the Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk just like any other child. This gives us a sense of the one who will save his people from their sins being also one who desires to dwell in intimate relationship with his people. He is not the disinfected deity that pushes you at a distance because of your sin, but one who is made, who's traversed a decline, a descent that we simply can't comprehend to demonstrate the depth of his love for his people. And he invites you to know him. And then lastly, he will save his people from their sins and save them forever. He will save his people from their sins and he will save them forever. I think it's interesting for us to note that Matthew's going to bookend his gospel with this promise. You guys remember the words of Matthew 28, the Great Commission passage? What is the end of that promise? Lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. This is the, brack, this is the bookends of Matthew's gospel. A God who is with us in the incarnation to a God who is now with us by his spirit and will sustain and protect and guard his people until the day we're presented before the throne without spot or blemish. I have a God who is with me, who goes in me, and who will see me through till the final day. God is with us. So, a Savior who is God with me. This is the angel's summary of Jesus' life. And we see Joseph's conclusion. It's almost a foregone conclusion at this point, isn't it? Joseph wakes from a sleep, and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So we have this repetition. The angel of the Lord, he takes his wife, he calls his name Jesus. He responds in faith and trust to these two twin glorious promises. And friends, that is the exact same challenge before us today. That is the exact same call to you if you are here and you do not know Christ. That you would see him as a sympathizing Savior who is the only God-appointed means to free you from the plight that your sin has got you in. You have no other alternative but to turn to him in faith and trust. And friends, this doesn't end the moment we trust Christ. This is the same call that's before you and I who are in Christ every day. 
that we would see and worship a glorious Savior who is also one who can sympathize with our weakness, that we would draw near to the throne of grace. And this is, in many ways, what we're saying and doing by taking communion together, by celebrating the Lord's table. Our servers are going to come now and distribute the elements that paint for us a picture of a sympathizing Savior. Consider this. You hold in your hand a picture of broken body and blood that was spilt. We celebrate because we know this is the God-appointed way that He accomplished our salvation, but we also hold a broken body and spilt blood, proving to us that this came at great cost. He is a sympathizing Savior. So as the elements are distributed to you this morning and we have some time in quiet reflection, let me invite you to the same thing Joseph was invited to so many years ago, to faith and trust. I don't know all the implications of that for you, nor do you know those for me, but we know that these are true for us all. If you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, you don't know him as your Savior, I invite you to pass on taking the elements and take Jesus. That you would bow your knee in faith and trust in him. Profess him as the only one who can save you from your sins. If you're here this morning and you do know Christ, would you use this time to worship a suffering Savior? a one who would take away the sins of the world, and one who is God with us.